If you're gonna run in Texas, you can't be a liberal man. Cause liberal thought is not the spirit of a Lone Star man. You gotta be tough as Texas and honest about your plans. If you're gonna run in Texas, you can't be a liberal man. Man, the Beatles. Well, guys, no. four lads from Liverpool who changed the world. Uh, I don't know. Okay, there we go. Um, you know what's crazy, Will? They didn't write a single bad song. It's true. <laughs> Even after they broke up. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. Definitely not that last John Lennon album that everyone kind of is like, eh, I guess we have to. That, that's funny that's that. Okay. That's funny that that's what you chose for the bad post breakup stuff, good. and not something like I don't know any Ringo album or Dance Tonight. Well, no, I'm not or... going with any Ringo album. <laughs> which which, <laughs> yeah, which Lennon album are you talking about? Double Fantasy. Double Fantasy's not very good. I'm sorry. It's it's rough. Although it does have its defenders. I feel like there's some good John tracks on that. There's one. people who love Double Fantasy. That's yeah. true. It's not um, the one that has a kiss, 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 kiss me, love. That's the that's yeah. the one. Yeah. Smash yeah. hit. Good yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's a good song. Secretary. That's the best post Beatles yeah. song by any of the members of the <laughs> Folks, uh, we're back. You've caught us in incognito mode. Luke Savage here. Another episode of Michael and Us. Joining me as always is... Uh, Will Sloan, co-host of the show, and... Beto O'Rourke, Whoa. candidate for president of the United States of America. That's right. We have a big endorsement to make. <laughs> That's... <laughs> that's true I uh, thank you for aligning perfectly with my politics uh, I better work no folks it's Chris Berube I'm back he's back from uh, hard hardcore listeners to the show longtime devotees to Michael and us nation will remember Chris all the way back from season one it feels like a million years ago the last episode you were on Chris I think was when we were talking about uh, one of the Dinesh D'Souza movies uh, we were talking about 2016 Obama's America uh, it was Obama's yeah. America not Hillary's America do we ever get around to that we one? did do did watch that one? Yeah, yeah we did watch Hillary's America doesn't that show the extent to which these things blur together yeah to which the show has apparently melted your brains <laughs> 2016 Obama's America is the one my, my main memory of it is he, he goes over to Kenya and interviews George Obama that's right and it is half brother it is a torturous form <laughs> and George Obama just like stubbornly refuses to say anything particularly bad about his brother <laughs> this and, is this is a movie where he keeps saying dreams from my father and like hitting the word from super hard right. is, is that that's the interview where um is this the same one where he keeps do, do, keeps doing the my brother's keeper thing and he yeah keeps saying, he, keeps, like, he keeps quoting the bible would you say that that your brother is your keeper and he's just like i don't know I, I don't know i don't care he's doing his <laughs> own thing George, really yeah george obama <laughs> keeps saying things like well he's my brother's keeper in the sense that he's keeping taking care of the whole world and i'm, <laughs> I'm part of the world yeah. and oh. and dinesh keeps trying to push him in the direction of okay okay but but he's not really taking care of you directly, is he? Well, this is this is when well, he he's says, busy, you know? This is when he says, so when uh, Barack fights climate change, it shows that he's caring about you, right? And George Obama's like, I don't know. <laughs> Leave me alone. Why am I here? I think George Obama is like a big Trump guy, too. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah. that goes to show the extent to which Dinesh just fumbled that interview. But Chris, I believe you were on another episode, and you'll have to refresh oh, my memory about which, which one that I was. was. On, I was on Bowling for Columbine, which is oh, in the wow. uh, back in the actual Michael Moore run you guys were doing, uh, which, man, that feels... I mean, I mean, the, those episodes feel like 100 years ago because those were like uh, pre, before pre the 2016 election. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, so folks, we're back. We're, we're loose. Now that we've situated the this episode, you know, in the in the wider Michael and us canon, I guess we'll <laughs> we'll get to business. And uh, we got another uh, hot Beto O'Rourke episode coming up for you. But we'd be remiss, I think, if we didn't, uh, you know, do, do our kind of campaign notebook section at the beginning. 
There's been a lot going on. I'm sure you people have not heard any of this stuff by, you know, going on Twitter or listening to other podcasts that talk about it. So we're, we're going to serve it to you straight. Right before Chris and Will arrived, I was uh, reviewing the latest uh, news from the Biden camp. And I got to say, in the kind of endlessly growing tally of uh, Biden gaffes. So, I mean, yesterday he, he couldn't remember Barack Obama's name. Um, but I think this one maybe takes the takes the cake, and I just want to read a couple of sentences from this Washington Post article. Uh, the details are not important here. You can read for yourself. But basically, Joe Biden was in New Hampshire uh, yesterday, and uh, this is the setup. Joe Biden painted a vivid scene for 400 people packed into a college meeting hall. A four-star general had asked the then-vice president to travel to Kunar province in Afghanistan, a dangerous foray into godforsaken country to recognize the remarkable heroism of a Navy captain. Some told him it was too risky, but Biden still brushed off their concerns. We can lose a vice president, he said. We can't lose uh, many more of these kids. Not a joke. Anyway, <laughs> I'm not going to I'm not gonna do all the kind of exposition on the story or whatever. Uh, he concluded it, and this is pretty important. So the room fell silent. Biden said, this is the God's truth. My word as a Biden. Um, back to the Washington Post here. Except almost every detail in the story appears to be incorrect. Based on interviews with more than a dozen U.S. troops, their commanders, and Biden campaign officials, it appears as though the former vice president has jumbled elements of at least three actual events into one story of bravery, compassion, and regret that almost never happened. Skipping a little bit more. The upshot, in the space of three minutes, Biden got the time period, the location, the heroic act, the type of medal, the military branch, and the rank of the recipient wrong, as well as his own role in the ceremony. What you are talking about, Luke, is the accountant's truth. <laughs> I am seeking an ecstatic truth. That's true. Joe Biden is about the ecstatic truth, yeah. I'm sure, Luke, you're familiar with the concept in fiction or, or nonfiction of the composite character. <laughs> uh, that's true. It was a lot easier for him to tell the story that way. I'm sure that's true. But so, I mean, obviously we could talk about how this is just the latest in a series of Biden gaffes, but I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that because there is something kind of interesting about this, about how, you know, so much of what goes on in kind of the business of campaigning is just the weaving of these kind of grand narratives. And I mean, Biden is taking some liberties with the truth here. But, I mean, I feel like all these kind of grand narratives are just sort of weird pastiches of, like, you know, mm -hmm. facts and emotions and stuff. And I'm not saying this to defend Biden, but I, I think that in some kind of weird and surreal ways, it's not out, that much outside of, uh, you know, the parameters of, like, typical bullshit uh, campaigning. Well, you heard it here first. Luke Savage defends Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah, that's the Michael Ness endorsement for Joe Biden. <laughs> this is not that much worse than other campaigns. We're, we're, we're withholding it because we've actually got a big endorsement coming later. Stay, mm -hmm. stay tuned for that. Uh, the other big news on the campaign trail right now is that Kirsten Gillibrand has dropped out. I'm not sure if we have anything to, uh, to say about that. Something that's interesting about the Gillibrand campaign to me is really how much of it I feel like has been held back by people defending like the Al Franken defenders yeah. has really like undone her campaign is that Gillibrand came in like for the longest time in the run-up everyone was like oh Gillibrand's gonna be one of the big ones yeah she's she was, one of the first yeah. people who was like we gotta boot Franken out of the senate and then her campaign just flatlined and never recovered and I really think some of that is people who were like I don't know. Should we have gotten rid of Franken? Like she, I really she couldn't think get donors it. because no, of she that, couldn't. right? Yeah. yeah, and I really think that had a, a great deal to do with it. It's important to emphasize out. here, though, that so I mean, I think to me the real story of Gillibrand. I mean, it's unclear. I mean, the, the, yeah, what what you just said, Chris, is like uh, you know a lot of people believe that yeah, the, the Franken thing was what kind of sunk her campaign, and it, it clearly did make her some some kind of unusual enemies that a politician with her 
views would probably not normally have. But to me, the real story of, the, uh, of her campaign is that, I mean, Gillibrand, like so many other candidates in the race, is one of these people who, you know, was a fairly right-leaning Democrat yeah. uh, not yeah. that long ago. Uh, Gillibrand, of course, replaced Hillary Clinton in her Senate seat. There are innumerable photos of her with Bill Clinton. Um, and she waited until kind of the last minute to be like, well, actually, maybe the Monica Lewinsky, whole, maybe that whole incident was bad. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, maybe Al Franken should... Uh, resign. I mean, I think even in the most charitable reading, it was kind of a bit of uh, political opportunism that kind of backfired. Yeah, I mean, uh, Gillibrand, what's interesting is like when she first ran for Senate, she was like, I'm the upstate New York person, like I'm the gun owner. Yeah. Like she she very yeah. much was the like blue dog Democrat at some mm-hmm. point in her career. And I think she's done with like a lot of establishment Democrats have done. And that is like kind of cloak themselves in like the language of democratic socialism or whatever and been like oh yeah like i am fighting for you i'm fighting for the small person mm-hmm. and like no it's true she very much is one of those people who's like much like the person we're going to talk about today but o'rourke who has like really been a weather vane for where the democratic party thinks they're supposed to be at any given moment yeah, yeah and i mean another big backstory to not just the the ongoing primary the current primary but also the 2016 campaign was that uh at some point you know before 2015 i'm not sure it'd be hard to locate the exact moment there was a, a, a cultural shift in American liberalism where it no longer became acceptable to be what the standard Democrat was, even from a blue state like New York in kind of the mid to late 2000s. Like all of a sudden uh, you had to be woke. That was a big thing. Right, and and yeah. Hillary Clinton herself is a, is a perfect example of that because here was somebody who in 2008, I mean, she ran basically the white populist campaign that her her campaign falsely accused Bernie Sanders of running. She ran as the, I'm the candidate of, of hardworking, you know, blue collar uh, right, whites, yeah. you know, which was a standard part of the Democratic campaign formula. It's another reason, it's, I mean, it's the main reason why Biden was picked to be Obama's running mate is because we, we got, we can't, we can't lose those people. We can't lose those uh, salt of the earth types. And, <laughs> and hey, maybe, maybe we just got to be a little, a little racist and a little problematic. And at some point, things kind of flipped. And all these Democrats who were who were tough on crime, neo-libs, you know, all of a sudden were, were using like intersectional language <laughs> and things like that. Uh, I've forgotten, um, I think it was the Flint water crisis that, that Hillary Clinton's campaign produced this like this chart that was like linking all the causes of the Flint, Flint water crisis. And, it, it, and people should people should just Google like Hillary Clinton chart flint water crisis i don't have it in front of me but it but looking at it it is such a a strange document of 2016 and it's something that in 2008 would have been completely unimaginable like a a new type of uh language and and rhetoric crept into american liberalism uh which had not been there before and uh now it's just kind of uh everywhere and it's actually hard to remember a time when it wasn't everywhere Mm -hmm. um and the demise of the Gillibrand campaign, uh, like so many of these kind of, um, you know, failed centrist campaigns that that have featured over the last few months, kind of says, I mean, it suggests anyway that, you know, kind of the formula isn't working. That's something that we've talked about on the show. And I think that's going to be one of the the big theses of, of today's episode as well. Because they invaded another country and annexed a significant portion of it called Crimea. Right. He's saying that it was President, my boss... It's his fault. Luke, you've often opined that the way to go against right-wing populism is with left-wing populism. And last year we saw that in the state of Texas when uh, a, a traditionally red state got the most decisive Democratic challenger they've had in generations. A, ch- a Democratic challenger who ran as an unapologetic liberal 
a full-on latte drinking. Uh, forget that. He was a hardcore socialist. I mean, he had me until he said we need to arm Antifa with AR-15s. I thought that was a stretch too far. And we're privileged to have on the show a man who was with, with Beto from the beginning, a man who was in on the ground floor of, of, <laughs> of the the, the, uh, the Beto phenomenon. That's true. I was on, I was on the Beto bus. I, uh, Despite being a Canadian citizen, yeah. he was allowed to vote. Yeah, they made for, an for exception. They, they, made they, they, were like, they were like, this is the most important election of our lifetime, so therefore we have to give a special waiver to uh, to non-citizens for this one. Um, I, I, do, I do feel like uh, before we get into this and talk about Chris's role in it, we should uh, properly introduce Chris, or rather reintroduce Chris. Oh, sure. So Chris, to to those who haven't been listening to Michael and us since 2016, which is maybe a few thousand of our current listeners, oh, okay. I'm not sure how far people have gone back into the into the archives. But who are you? How do we know oh, each sure. other? And what? And 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 after that, you can tell us what your role was in all this. Uh, for sure. Well, uh, I uh, know you guys. I've known you guys for a very long. It's time. been a we while. To, yeah, we've we've known it's each been other a minute. from, from yeah. <laughs> uh, university and stuff. But the varsity. Uh, yeah, we were at the varsity together. I have been working sort of in, in news media for a while as, as uh, Will has, if you guys, you guys have both sort of done like a lot of writing and mm-hmm. we did, we did uh, internships together back in the yeah, day. Yeah, we did. We entered together. We at went I to Weekly. school together. We did. Yeah. Um, uh, you guys recorded a, a novelty Kevin Smith uh, smodcast. We did that which, never got released. Never yeah. released yeah. But <laughs> this, this was actually my very <laughs> first foray into the world of podcasting. Chris and I got together one day and there's a book. I, I was present for of, this. There's I a book of transcripts. Yeah, there's a book of transcripts of Kevin Smith's podcast, which I think it's like the early days of podcasting when people were like, how do you monetize podcasts? And it's like, I don't know, book of transcripts? Sure. It, it's a book called Shooting the, Shooting the Shit with Kevin Smith. <laughs> and it is, it's the literally best just, of Smodcast. Yeah, and it is just transcripts of stuff Kevin Smith has said in the podcast. And I was like, oh, this, and it was on sale. I remember this at the Strand Bookstore in New York for $2 down from a retail price of 35 And uh, I picked this up and, and we were like, oh yeah, you know what? We should do a novelty podcast where we read the transcripts of Kevin Smith's podcast and re-release that as a new podcast. And, and I, I, was, I was there for the recording, oh. so I can oh, I can confirm that it oh, happened. I did not participate. Um, unfortunately, oh, the God. you know because uh, because Will and Chris are craven sellouts, the Disney Corporation stepped in and Disney it's now Corporation locked. It's in. now it's they you know it's in the Disney vault. It's in the Disney vault. <laughs> it's locked down in there and it's not going to come out for for some time. Do the recordings still exist by any they chance? They might somewhere. I mean, I'm glad yeah. they aren't out there just because both of us have done media things. Now. It would be very embarrassing <laughs> yeah. for people to out of context take any of us any of the words we were quoting the, the, Kevin Smith is saying. The conversations were quite foul mouthed and problematic. Yeah, they were they were real bad. Um, <laughs> I, I could sort of sense you, you know, backing away no, from I this honestly, idea. I remember this. I remember because in the middle, I think we had to stop at one point. And it was just like, I don't know, are we actually going to finish reading this? Like, I think there was some point where we both realized, like, we can't do a, full, a whole podcast of us saying these well, horrible things. I, I thought it would be great because we'd do five episodes. And yeah. hopefully we would get a little bit of legal saber rattling from Kevin Smith <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. himself we, that could we, rocket us to start him. Essentially, this was a, us trolling <laughs> Kevin Smith's uh, enterprise. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they never saw the light of day. I mean, since then, I went on to, I've done work with CBC News, done work with Slate, and the reason that I'm connected to Beto in any kind of meaningful way is that during the, the Senate race, I was there making a podcast with Texas Monthly Magazine where we actually were covering the Beto and Cruz race, and the idea was that, you know, we're going to get inside, like, Beto's campaign, like, we're going to kind of show the behind-the-scenes stuff, like, we're going to show the... Uh, like the big question we had was like, okay, what is it to be a Democrat in the year 2018? And like, how does Beto running in Texas represent that? And like, there was some talk that maybe Beto was going to try to run like a populist, yeah. kind of like maybe DSA-ish campaign, like, mm-hmm. which, you know, in Texas would have been kind of unprecedented. 
Uh, he didn't ultimately end up doing that. Like he he had a campaign that was sort of neither weird. fish nor foul. Yeah, it was neither fish nor foul because like he well he did the small donors thing. He kinda. did the small donors thing. He Rejected said he wouldn't take back money. money. Yeah. He in his speeches he would say things like we need universally accessible healthcare, which ah, in hindsight we now realize yeah. like he he came out being like we need universal healthcare, but he never said we should have like Medicare yeah, for all, national Medicare. Yeah. yeah. Was he for yeah. uh, quote unquote common sense gun control? He was for com- he was very much for universal background checks, which okay. I feel like is like the bare minimum. It's like yeah. the floor. For for like gun control uh and he said he was in favor of legalizing marijuana and reducing the prison population like he said mm-hmm. and all these things he said in very broad ways sure there was the big viral moment where he sort of supported the taking the knee he thing. said he said it was very american to take the knee during the national anthem right. in the nfl and that's uh-huh. the thing that got it well I, I mean i think we have to go back even further to understand like the big moment when beto became a national figure which was do you guys remember the road trip do you guys know anything about the? Road I trip? remember the Tom Green film. If that's uh, what you're it was the Tom to. Green film. Stars Tom Green and Beto. No, um, so this so is yeah, like... an actor from that film just followed me on Twitter. Incidentally, oh, oh right? nice. Not Tom was, Green. Was it Tom Green? No, unfortunately, oh, it wasn't. Okay. Um, no, well, like the thing that really brought Beto to attention. So Beto is like the El Paso congressman. He, he'd been in for two terms, and he and Will Hurd, who's the Republican congressman from the next district over, were like doing a, a tour together of veterans hospitals. And there was a big snowstorm in Washington, and their flight got canceled. And Beto was like, hey, why don't we rent a car and drive up and like li- like Facebook Live the whole thing? And Will Hurt's like, great idea. So they did it. And like it was like this 29 hours of them in a car together. And it was them like talking about their kids and like talking about like trying to find common ground and like stopping to get burgers and stuff like that. And people went nuts for that. Like two and a half million people watched it. Like people were going like, oh, my God, look, this is what we're missing in this country is like Democrats and Republicans talking to yeah. each other. If you just get in a car with one of these people, like you realize we have more in common than we don't. And, like, that, I think, set the stage for him to run for Senate right. to become, like, the Beto that, that became a media sensation. But, but so, Chris, you worked on a podcast that, that kind mm-hmm. of followed Beto around. And, and um, we watched a film today produced by HBO in association oh. with uh, Crooked Media, yeah, I believe, called Running with Beto. We will get to the film. I mean, it's largely a trifle, um, largely kind of a foil for us to talk about uh, other stuff. But but tell us <laughs> yeah. about the, the podcast that, that you worked on. Some people uh, listening may even have heard it. Oh, sure. Um, so it's called underdog and in the early days we're like okay well like the person who hosted it is a guy named eric benson who's this like writer for texas monthly and he'd done this big profile of beto which was like it was you know it was a profile it had it was more critical i think than a lot of the profiles that were coming out like it talked a lot about his time in el paso and how he was kind of a a bit of a controversial figure in el paso a a big development guy right he was yeah he he i mean the big knock against him is like latino populations in el paso really had issue with beto because he'd approved these developments through like latino neighborhoods and stuff but like okay so eric wrote this profile but the Beto campaign was like, okay, yeah, if you want to come, like, follow us around, like, be in the car with Beto, like, let you guys do that. And we're like, fantastic, great, we're going to get all this on the ground tape and, like, whatever. And then we did one episode where Eric was in the car with Beto, and then they were just like, yeah, the race is getting kind of close. <laughs> I don't know if we can keep letting you guys in the car. <laughs> so the rest of the series were like, I don't know, I guess we're just going to go out and, like, talk about Texas and other stuff. How, like how many episodes did you end up making? We ended up making six. Right. And, like... I got to listen to two of them. We came into it being like, oh, man, so much is going to happen. Like, it's going to become, like, this crucible for America. And I think we realized something that I didn't know that, Luke, you know because you've run a campaign. It's like, campaign, not a lot happens. Like, yeah. it stuff yeah. happens, but, like, it's the same thing over and over and over again. It's mm-hmm. like... When we followed Beto for two days, we're like, okay, we've seen him give the same speech six times. Yeah. Like, what else is there to know about this guy? 
But I mean, I think the podcast turned you know it turned out pretty well. It was quite Gar- popular. Yeah, it was popular. Yeah. The Guardian gave us mm. a very good review. The New Yorker gave us a good review. Like it was good, but it was still this thing where like man, after like two days with Beto, it's like uh, he's we've seen him give the same speech like well, so I, many times. I was I was saying to you guys while the film was playing is the film like all these you know, almost all these movies this type of movie that we've watched for the show yeah it's just it's just bursting with these moments of showing you what a campaign looks like that you're supposed to find very exciting and I was saying to you guys like I have lived through this. I mean, I've worked on many campaigns, but one in particular, you know, I was like in the thick of it in the comms department um, and then later was a candidate in the campaign. And in my opinion, campaigning, you know, obviously elections, they're necessary, etc. You know, this has to be done. I met many people, I've, you know, in my political travels, I've met many people who enjoy this process, who find it exciting, people who done this many more times than me and have a kind of work ethic for it that far surpasses mine. But it is, uh, it is not exciting. Campaigns are filled with monkey work. You know, uh, I have West Wing brain because I did a podcast about, uh, well, because I always do, but also because I did a podcast early day about the West Wing. Um, and, uh, you know, I was saying uh, to the host, you know, I was a political staffer and everybody, you know, even me to some extent, you, you watch that show or others like it and you think, well, when you're a political staffer, it's going to be really exciting. It's going to be like this. And it's not like that at all, whether you're working in a, in a legislature or on a campaign, it is writing fundraising emails. And there's only like, there's not that many ways you can do that. So you end up like, just making endless variations on the same, you know, drab formula. Campaigns are the same, except instead of a nine to five that's a little bit tedious and maybe has the odd interesting moment, it's a hundred days of doing like 60 hour weeks or 90 hour, I mean, just barely sleeping. You know, you are legally drunk if you do campaign hours for like three or four days. Nobody sleeps. Uh, you eat like crap. You you gain a ton of weight. Uh, yeah. You just you feel horrible. You if you have a, a partner, you're like barely gonna see them. It's awful. And so anytime we watch one of these films and it tries to make this look exciting, I'm like, don't you, you're not fooling me. <laughs> this this well, really does give you. It's like this is the most epic quest you can go on is running for office, and it's just kind of like, <laughs> yeah, man, they they probably had the same subway sub like oh, fifty the, times. Like the, the not so hidden times. theme of all these documentaries is you got this very uh, great and charismatic man at the center of it somebody who's been called by God to run and uh, you're supposed to admire him for sort of sullying himself, for getting down. He's in rolling there. up the sleeves. He's there at a shitty-looking community center. He's talking to the rubes and the plebs and and just vile, ordinary people. <laughs> um, and but these are the sacrifices that a man this great has to make to assume his greatness. You well, know. Well, but I mean, it, it's funny because like I think Beto's whole pitch was he. It's like he loves this. He loves talking to eight people uh-huh. in like a bunch of plastic mm. chairs. Like this is his whole thing. It's like oh, yeah. he just wants to meet everybody. And like um, he did sort of something similar to like the howard dean like 50 state strategy like he was like i'm gonna go to every single county in texas i'm gonna be the first democrat who's ever done that including places where we had like eight democrat votes total and like i'm gonna talk to these people who nobody ever talks to and to some extent that did work because like i did hear from a lot of people who were just like you know i just i disagree with beto on literally everything and like i think he's gonna take my guns like he showed up and shook my hand so like come in you know like (laughs) yeah it's that was kind of his big pitch is it's like beto actually like likes talking to people and will show up and has a lot of energy you know what the camera's all messed up on this thing i don't know we're like in a dream there's something very inhumane and un-american taking place right now Beto and I were like, okay, what can we do to change this dialogue at a national level? And when you have an opponent like Cruz, that just seemed like a very easy answer. The hard left is angry. They're energized and they're coming for Texas. Out of that conversation came this idea of what if we ran for Senate? 
I'm traveling to all 254 counties to meet everybody that I can. He's gonna be live on Facebook for 24 hours straight. This is either my best idea ever or my last idea ever. I went up to Beto and I told him, I said, here's the deal, man. You better bring brains, backbone, and balls to the table or go home. Because of all the negative attack ads on Beto, because we're not punching back hard enough, everyone is telling you you're doing it wrong. I just really miss the kids. I'm ready for it to be over. You all ready to do this? There's a reason why the people down here say that their vote doesn't matter. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. People have brought out the very best in themselves. Somehow we've got to be able to continue to feel that way. So I want to just kind of introduce the the, the film, uh, which which you know there's not much. It was shot on film, so I think that's the correct uh, <laughs> seventy, 70 it. millimeter. It was seventy millimeter. Yeah, right. gorgeous. The, yeah. The, I mean, the less said about this movie, the better. But I mean, ba- <laughs> basically, this was HBO um, in conjunction with Crooked Media. If people remember our episode, I guess it might be six months ago, it might be a year ago. I don't remember. But Labor, the summer that changed everything, which was a documentary about the British general election and the Labor campaign in 2017. This film, uh, and I think this episode we're doing, is kind of a, the the spiritual ancestor of that in some ways, because as people will remember, that film, uh, the filmmakers set out to make a movie about the demise of the Labor Party under a radical leftist leader who was liked only by a small fringe, who 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 exerted disproportionate influence in British politics, took over the main center-left party, dragged it so far to the left it became unelectable. Um, you know, they were going to lose seats in Wales. They were going to lose seats in Scotland. It was going to be a bloodbath. That didn't happen. So uh, the film had to pivot at the end, and in its own kind of weird way, I love that movie, even though I think the intentions of the people making it were not initially very good. But it, it ends up being kind of meta-commentary on how the media constructs narratives and tries to perpetuate them. This film, uh, something I think kind of similar is going on. Um, obviously, when they set out to make it, they didn't know what the result of the Senate election was going to be. But what they were committed to was the idea that, hey, this guy is going to be a major force in American politics. Whether he wins the Senate election to topples Ted Cruz or not, if, if he loses, hey, he can run for president. If he wins, hey, he can run for president four years from now. So the, this, the filmmakers, I think, probably pretty explicitly set out to document the rise, the meteoric rise of this new force in American politics. A Robert Kennedy-like uh, figure, uniquely charismatic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, you know, now that I'm so glad we're watching the film now, as opposed to like right after it <laughs> yeah. came out, because we, we we can now kind of see how dumb all that was in retrospect. <laughs> I mean, we really like we talked a great deal about doing like a follow-up podcast where it's like following Beto running for the nomination, and that's a much more interesting podcast because it's about like a guy who everyone has told him like you're the best, you should definitely run for president. Then like realizing there's almost no constituency that's supporting him to do that. <laughs> it, like, it was yeah. a very particular context that allowed for the Beto phenomenon to happen because Beto sure. was a was a national phenomenon. Yeah. People were wearing Beto t-shirts in Williamsburg. Right. Uh, and he was going on the Ellen show. I don't know. My theory is that sort of northern and coastal libs were so tired of having people like George Bush or they had this 
Or, you know, because of uh, the way the Electoral College always works out, it's like the southern states are having this disproportionate influence. And and now we're getting in there. You know, we've got somebody who feels like a Brooklyn hipster who's running as a Brooklyn hipster and he's and he's taking over. And in fact, they like him there because if you can just present the truth to them, they'll be won over. So I think that's something the film, the one compliment I'll give it is, is I do think for me anyway, it kind of illustrated why Beto was such a phenomenon a little better than anything I'd, I'd seen before. And I think you're right, Will. Uh, I'd, I'd add to that, I guess, that I, I think that the Beto phenomenon is largely the product of kind of the bizarre political equilibrium that followed 2016. People right. were looking for something. They were looking for, well, anything. A, a great but, white hope. I mean, yeah, for a lot of them, that's what it was. Um, and, and Beto just, he came along and he was this kind of perfect cipher. And he was a useful catch-all because as we were saying, you know, people were able to tell themselves this is kind of like, you know, including some of Beto's volunteers, you know, this is kind of like a Bernie thing. That he's doing small donations. He's, you know, he's not taking the PAC money, but he was also acceptable to kind of centrist Democrats. And so he became this this giant receptacle into which all these emotions could be poured. And I think that's what made him a national figure. If you think about the, the specific circumstances, like he's running against Ted Cruz, yeah. who is this Loathsome guy, figure. yeah, who's like a, a total national villain to lots yeah. of people. He's running in the first election since the election of Trump. So mm-hmm. there's everyone wants some vessel. Catharsis. Which can, yeah, yeah, some catharsis. They want to see a win, like all this. They And they didn't They didn't get it with, uh, who's the, God, I'm forgetting his name. I mean, they got Doug Jones. They got Doug <laughs> that Jones. The, that was the first they, big they one. They narrowly beat the pedophile. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but who is the, who is the. Alleged pedophile. Who is the fellow that, we've, we've literally played his ads on the show before. I'm just blank. The guy that did the Obama impression. Oh, yeah. On, yeah, he was like a, a, a modern progressive son. Southerner who who he believed was, in development. He was and... he was like he was like the most boring neoliberal oh, Democrat. Oh no, I know I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I'm embarrassed to say I had to look that up. The fellow's name was John Ossoff. I've talked about it oh, many John times. Oh, John Ossoff, of course. Of course. Uh, and and he was a sort of perfect prelude in some ways to Beto. Although you know, I think Beto, to his credit, is maybe a little bit uh, higher caliber at doing a sort of bad Obama impression. Because if people remember. Ossoff, who ran, you know, his whole campaign, if you watch the ads, is just things like, you know, we need to cut red tape. And, you know, it's just like the typical Democratic campaigns just targeting like affluent suburban voters or whatever. But then on election night, he gave this uh, very like Obama-esque concession speech. And when I say Obama-esque, I mean, I don't I don't just mean that he was doing kind of these like you know, platitudes. platitudes and stuff. But he was doing a literal Obama impression. Like at one point, he's oh, like, no, he's like, really? he's well, I mean, dead serious. I'll play it for you after, Chris. It's you have to see it to believe it. But he's at one point, he's like, he's like, uh, this community, which has become the epicenter of politics, much to my chagrin. And then later, he's like, this this election was never about me. It was about you. You know, he's, he, I mean, he is trying to copy Obama's like cadence and stuff. (laughs) Anyway, that didn't quite work, but along came Beto and for a certain kind of democratic consultant or strategist, this was going to be the next big thing. And I guess before we get into that, I guess I will just say watching this film, you can see how much kind of earnestness, you know, gets poured into something like this. You know, this is something that uh, I feel like I've, I've lived over and over again in these kind of periodic bouts of like liberal false consciousness. I don't know if we've talked about the 2010 UK election on the podcast, but I became briefly a part of uh, what retroactively has been called Clegg mania, which was where we all got, we all decided that uh, 
Nick Clegg was the, you know, second coming of Christ, this like moderate kind of centrist figure who ended up going into a coalition with David Cameron Nick, and Nick Clegg rubber is stamping a, austerity. He's one of those guys who definitely like the media hype around him yeah. compared to the number of votes, like the proportion has to be like 81 oh, yeah. or something. And like, he, now, it was wild he now works much. at yeah. like Facebook. He's right. like president of Facebook. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, imagine how I feel with my Ron Paul revolution lower back <laughs> tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the point is these guys come along and it's very important for people to understand. I mean, I have a bit of a fervor of a apostasy thing because I, I have lived through this and I hate myself for having kind of felt this way I and mean, caught up in these in these things. But it is important to understand when these things happen, on a grassroots level anyway, there is a lot of good intentions that, that are also kind of caught up in something, even if ultimately it's sort of a conservative phenomenon. And that's the only that's the only kind and charitable thing I'm going to say about this before we get into the, the trashing. This documentary, like all of these documentaries about uh, Democrats campaigning that we watch, is full of kind of ordinary working class people yeah. uh, who talk about how Beto has sort of opened their eyes to new possibilities uh-huh. for the first time. Or uh, there's one person who says that she was a lifelong Republican. She really felt the kind of a Republican identity until the Bernie until campaign. Bernie, yeah. Um, and now she's for Beto. And uh, I don't know, it's it's, uh, it's sort of sweet and sort of sad to see all of it when you know that Beto is just sort of doing this as the runway to his inevitable presidential campaign. The, the lesson, though, and I mean, I think it's the same lesson that, that, you know, you can learn from Obama away, is that there actually is a genuine kind of hunger for political change in a lot of different contexts. The United States being just one of them, you know, it's often captured, especially when there's no real alternative on offer. It, get, it ends up getting captured by these like people who are basically milk toast centrists who aren't aren't really critics of the system, but who are briefly able to capture kind of enough of an aura of novelty that people think they are. For a lot of people, if they've been through that process once, it, it doesn't kind of radicalize them. It makes them more cynical, and they might opt out, you know, entirely. Um, and I think those are the two sides mm-hmm. of the Obama phenomenon. You know, you have people who basically were like, okay, well, this is just the best we can hope for. Anything that's mm-hmm. bad that came out of it, well, too bad. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the best we could ever hope for. And there's people, and I would more put myself in this category, who decide, well, actually, you know, if, if this wasn't the real thing, we just need to do the real thing. We need to understand why this wasn't the real thing. And I and I think there were, I mean, I, I've read a few articles about people who were Bernie fans that volunteered for Beto. And then as soon as he ran for president, we're like, okay, well, we're just going to work for Bernie because, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. It, it is tragic when you see this documentary and you see that the Beto campaign, like they really built an infrastructure and they created a vision for what a coalition of an anti-Republican campaign would look like. And it's probably all just going to amount... It's just going to evaporate after this, you know? Uh, Nobody's going to... Beto certainly isn't going to come and try to ride this momentum into something else. I mean, the irony... This is skipping ahead a bit, but the irony of it is if Beto decided to run for Senate again in 2020, which he could because the other Texas Senate seat is coming up, like, he would have that infrastructure in place and Mm -hmm. he could, like, theoretically reactivate that, but he doesn't seem to want to at all. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's it's very strange. So I think here we can can pivot into kind of... um, timeline that that followed after the the film and that's the kind of Beto presidential stage of things and to me this is where the the truth about the Beto phenomenon really really you know kind of came out so you know obviously after you know Beto runs unsuccessfully in Texas uh, regardless of the fact that he loses he is instantly becomes a kind of national figure and as uh, Will you were saying before you know he had a has a big constituency kind of outside of Texas among uh you know, coastal celebrities and, you know, people in kind of solid blue states. And so to some Democratic consultants, including um, somebody that was connected to to Crooked Media and the production of this movie, this guy was the most gifted politician in a generation, and he simply had to run for president. 
Why was he supposed to run for president? Well, nobody could really say, including Beto himself. He was uh, born to run. He was right. He was born Remember to run. That? So I'm glad you brought that up. That's exactly where I was going next. <laughs> the Vanity Fair profile, which is one of my favorite pieces of kind of schlocky writing, I think really kind of summed it up. And I just want to read a couple of quotes here from that article because uh, you know it's all the way back. I think in March that it came out, and people may have uh, forgot. So this was after um, after you know Beto was kind of a uh, he was he was set to announce. Various people were singing his praises, including Pod Save America, our sister podcast. Uh, Dan Dan P P P Dan P P Pfeiffer, however you say it. Um, he said he'd never seen a Senate candidate, including Obama in 04, inspire the sort of enthusiasm Beto did in the race. Millions of people already believe in Beto work, and that moment for them and him may be upon us. Uh, there was Robert Wolf, um, past executive at UBS Investment Bank, big Democratic Magadoni said he's game-changing. So this culminates in the Vanity Fair profile, which uh, is shot by Annie Leibovitz. It runs an astonishing 8,500 uh, words, and it takes thousands of words before we learn anything about what Beto believes. And it's, it's still not very much um, at the end of it. And this connects back to something you said, Chris. He says, you know, it's important to defeat Trump, but that's not exciting to me. What's exciting to me is figuring out something that has eluded us for so long. How do we make sure every single person can see a doctor in this country? So there is not very much that's kind of programmatic here. He later said in the profile, you know, he supports the Green New Deal as a rad idea in spirit. But most of the profile, and this is what struck me reading it at the time, it's kind of these like, derivative cultural signifiers. There's a, you know, a line about uh, how his record collection includes Nina Simone and The Clash. My favorite line in the piece is about how on his library shelf, uh, there's a, an impressive shelf of presidential biographies, quote, arranged in historical order, thus suggesting there's been some reflection on the gravity of the presidency. And there are sentences about his charisma that are things like, you know, he seemed free of political calculation as if his charisma were mere side effect of Beto just being Beto. And the anecdote that accompanies that is the fact that um, he was on his way to a debate or something and he was like air drumming to Bubba O'Reilly. Um, yeah, that was also a big, that was the other big viral moment, I think, uh, with the NFL thing that people were like, oh, look at this guy. He's just having fun like you and me. <laughs> we, we saw a lot of moments in the movie where he swears. He does swear a lot. That is uh, that that is one yeah, of the like things that gives like, him like down to earth appeal or whatever. Yeah. You know, big money has so much fucking influence. <laughs> it's he does yeah, I mean, I don't know. The, the I mean he actually did get in trouble a little bit with the FCC for like on election night when he swore during his rally and all the, the TV channels. You gotta, like, oh, I forgot to put you gotta swear alone. just the he's, right amount. Just the right, you know? He's yeah. a little bit he's a little bit punk rock. He's a little bit punk rock, you guys. I think my second favorite line in the piece was uh Beto O'Rourke is quintessentially Generation X, weaned on Star Wars and Punk Rock and priding himself on authenticity over showmanship and a healthy skepticism of the mainstream. I just think about, you know, David. Star- Wars. David Brent telling that interviewer, uh, put David Brent is refreshingly relaxed for a man with such responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this was where the kind of fan fiction, you know, this is where it, to me it became clear, like, they're not even doing this right. You want to run a, lib, a liberal cipher, you got to give the campaign some flesh, some substance that goes beyond this. And they were absolutely, you know, not wanting to do that. And uh, it, it, hasn't, it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked on the scale of his uh, Senate campaign. And I would say, considering like the hype around it, it's been a, a monumental failure. He just relaunched, quote unquote, his campaign this week. He's going to be forgo or last week. He's going to be forgoing 
kind of the the normal chronology of states. Um, he's doing what was basically the failed Rudy Giuliani strategy from 2008. Mm-hmm. It seems at this point it's very likely his relaunch is more of a kind of informal campaign suspension. When he jumped in the race, like there, I remember there was some political article, a uh, Politico article that was like, all the donors are just waiting to see what Beto does before they put their money down. And, and he raised a lot in that first 24 hours. He did. Right? The, the first yeah. blush was, was successful, and everyone's like, oh, it's all about the three Bs. It's Bernie, Beto, and Biden. Those are your front runners. <laughs> and uh, very quickly, I think what people realized, it's like, well, there's kind of like... Turned out there was a fourth B, Buttigieg. Uh, it turns out there was a fourth, and it was Mayor Pete. And Mayor Pete... <laughs> Like, honestly, like basically took off, I'd say, one or two weeks after Beto launched his campaign. Oh, yeah. And Beto was already took up all the yeah, oxygen that Beto, Beto was Beto, to, Beto uh, had already out. peaked before he launched and before the Vanity profile, fair profile came out. Well, exactly. I, I mean, it's also it's something where when Beto ran for Senate, he had the stocking horse of Ted Cruz as the mm-hmm. person on the other side. And it's like Ted Cruz is it's a thing to run against, even though Beto didn't run like a negative campaign. Cause like, Oh, you're running against like, he's an establishment guy. He's an arch conservative guy. He's like, a, he, he just run a picture of Ted Cruz. And that's yeah, basically he's the, the worst guy. man who ever lived. Well, yeah. you've got Cruz on one side. And then the, when you're jumping into the democratic primary, like you have to have something better than like, I'm the guy who's going to unseat Ted Cruz. And like Beto didn't, present that right away like he's tried a few things since then like he said he's gonna have a five trillion dollar climate change plan or like he's launched a couple of strategies that kind of seem responsive to other democratic campaigns but it hasn't really been something where he's he's given a reason for him to run for president yeah his texas campaign had an irresistible story to it it's right like, it's yeah. like here is texas you know the the reddest state in the union and yeah. we're gonna we're gonna turn it blue and we're gonna do it on our own terms two years after trump got elected two years after trump guy, got elected yeah, that's yeah. the story i but, can but, see but, to me, to me that yeah. there no i mean i think mm. you're right but to me that is actually the that's the flaw of all this is that this is what happens when you conceive of politics is it's you know it's about telling a good story uh-huh. you know it's it's all about the capital n narrative and with the vanity fair profile and with his early campaign what you saw was they were just trying to graft they were like let's just recapture let's pick this thing up transplant it from texas drop it into the national scene and it'll be a winner we'll, we'll have him be interviewed by mm. oprah winfrey in times square and it'll catch fire and that hasn't happened yeah the two things that really i think have stood in his way are number one i think a lot of people thought biden would fizzle and like not be the front runner and he's kind of your centrist guy or like he's your well cent- give it give it time yeah, yeah. <laughs> then mayor Pete got in and then the third thing i think is also uh julian castro who's the other candidate from texas, from texas. who's in the race yeah. who nobody really was paying a lot of attention to julian castro like he's not like a, a very engaging public speaker so then the first debate happens and Castro and Beto are on the same stage and Castro's people make a decision that, okay, you're going to attack Beto. That's yeah. going to be your move <laughs> is like, you're going to show, you're going to attack the other Texas guy. You're going to tell him that he's wrong on the border, that he doesn't have an opinion on this, like very small mm-hmm. border law that probably nobody else even knew about, but like, you're going to stake that as like your thing you have an opinion on. And he said to Beto, like, do your homework next time, like do your homework and come back. And like, basically that's all you kind of need in these like giant 10 person debates is like one big moment to like Mm -hmm. really change the narrative around you in the media i think and that's what he and that kind of also just knocked beto off it's like he's not even the texas guy anymore you got castro as your texas guy Mm -hmm. the other thing that happened is people started actually looking at beto's record yeah that's there was Uh, not a ton of i mean there were some people doing a lot of reporting during the senate race but like 
yeah, it's true. Like when you actually mm-hmm. go back and look at the way he voted, he voted with Republicans on lots of stuff for around uh, around certain issues about energy specifically. Yeah. Well, and th- this was one of the kind of big problems with the kind of standard defense, you know, of of Beto. You know, before when when people were starting to be like, maybe he's actually not progressive enough. Everyone would say, yeah, but it's you know, it's Texas. But the trouble is, you know, he's from a House district that I think is something like twenty two points more Democratic leaning than your average uh, House district. He chose to sit with the kind of third way centrist caucus you know he wasn't sitting with the progressive democratic caucus he was right. sitting in the in the center um you know he could have basically voted however he wanted it's a solid blue district just because it's texas doesn't mean it's not a solid blue house district Beto, uh, talking about like this kind of idea of a weathered vein politician or something like i think the one thing in Beto's career that's been pretty consistently on kind of a more populist democrat track is like he's always been like marijuana should be legal like that's the one thing through all time he has argued that like kind of puts him at odds with like the the mainstream of the party but well like, the, the guy will has a tattoo of uh was was on that train a, a long time ago so <laughs> ron paul 2010 no but it's true like it's like talking about like mass incarceration like those were not the issues he was bringing up in like his early campaigns that like when he was running for senate in 2018 like that's suddenly he's like yeah yeah we gotta end mass incarceration and you know all these things to become big democratic talking points. Amy and I, we were watching the returns for a president, trying to figure out what's going on. Somebody just won an election by defining us as being scared and small and afraid. And so we just, you know, what what are we going to do? And out of that conversation came this idea of, what if we ran for Senate? Nobody asked us to do this, so I just gotta keep that in mind. That, that's how we started and that's how we have to, to continue it, so. Which part of mind? Just that, that we're running with, you know, gotta run like there's nothing to lose. So you spent a lot of time on the campaign trail. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> what, what did you learn from that experience, particularly as a journalist? It's interesting because, like, I'd done politics coverage before, but I'd never actually followed, like, a campaign for a couple of weeks in a row. Mm-hmm. I mean... The things you really come to learn from it are like one thing is that uh, I feel like we have this sense of like what the electorate is that's very different from what it is even in Texas like there were tons of people showing up to see Beto O'Rourke for example who were like yeah I actually don't know I could vote for Beto or Cruz like we we talk a lot about how people are like polarized and very set in their their minds but like there's tons of people who showed up who were like yeah I voted for Cruz and I think I'm gonna try better this time and just see how it goes like yeah. mm-hmm. I mean it's the reason that he ended up finishing you know only 200,000 votes behind Cruz is there's all these people who are like I don't know I'll try this new guy like that's the thing that we kind of forget about that there's lots of people that are persuadable and I think a lot of those people don't respond to like very timid modest language right they don't respond to like someone who's running on kind of a politics as usual thing and like yeah better did have this energy about him when he was doing it that Felt like it's like, oh, this is something different. You know, it's it's fun. Actually, okay. No, here's the thing that, okay, here's the thing that the whole Beto O'Rourke campaign confirmed for me, which I had sort of been thinking about and really got confirmed, is that the side having more fun tends to be the side that wins in American politics. This is my theory through time. So look back on like, the first Obama campaign, it was a lot more fun to vote for Obama than McCain. Mm. Still more fun to vote for Obama than Romney. And like in the... Trump Hillary campaign. It was more fun to vote for Trump. So more people showed up. People got enthusiastic. Like enthusiasm really matters. And it felt like, transgressive. And it feels and like yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. It actually matters <laughs> to like have a campaign where like it is actually oh, fun to show up for the people. <laughs> yeah. Um. That's the thing that I think people really didn't anticipate in 2016, especially is it's like 
oh, all these people are, like, really enjoying, like, coming out to the Trump rallies and yelling the wrestling cries and things like that. And that, I think, is, like, the enthousi- mm. like the enthusiasm gap actually matters, I think, well, and the a same, lot more than we say it does. The yeah. same thing with the Democratic primary. I mean, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders had these gigantic crowds, all this uh, enthusiasm, all kinds of, like, young people getting involved in politics for the first time, a, a genuine kind of grassroots dynamism to it, which, like, even though the Hillary Clinton campaign did did have a lot of support, I mean, she did get, she did get a lot of votes uh, in the primaries, it didn't have that same level of enthusiasm. It didn't have the same potential to generate national enthusiasm either. And that enthusiasm gap in the kind of euphemistic language of pollsters is what ultimately killed her in you know Michigan and Wisconsin and places like that where the turnout simply fell. Uh, Michigan is probably my favorite example of that because Trump won by some tiny margin, like 19,000 votes. And yet there were about 40,000 people, I think I think that's the number, considerably more anyway than the margin of victory, who, who did go to vote. They bothered to vote. They did stay home, but they left the presidential ballot blank because that's how disgusted they were by the choices and uh if her campaign had generated you know anything like the uh the enthusiasm that that sanders had generated uh she would definitely be president now to fill the enthusiasm gap you know who the republican should run next time the joker yeah people you know what's great about the joker he's the clown prince of crime <laughs> um <laughs> we know I, that everybody in washington's a criminal but how about one who has what a about the fun, clown prince of crime in, in, insane clown posse more like congress <laughs> whoa gosh i don't know i feel like watching this documentary again it's like you realize like all this stuff that i've come to know about better work that will never be useful in my life like better work eats a lot like that's kind of what's the oh, yeah. of this we documentary talk about this why is he eating so much he i don't understand how does man. he maintain his figure i truly oh, don't get it like he has he really does have the diet of like a 14 year old boy who's about to go through a growth spurt like he is someone who's like yeah he gets like a burger and a brownie and chicken nuggets and a shake and it's like <laughs> that's a meal i want to know like, yeah. who's watching all those live streams I, mean, I unfortunately it was me for a while <laughs> um or he'd play this game where he's like we'll see how many donuts i could eat in five minutes and like he'd see his wife in the car and she'd just be like please stop doing this. Yeah, you know like, you know was a, a funny little easter egg in the movie was when uh he does his uh flourish about nfl players kneeling right and then it's sh- there's a clip that's where it's like showing this clip going viral and y- you see the engagements you see the favorites and the retweets but then the, the numbers that's going up really fast is the replies. I like to imagine that the people that made this movie, like the pod save guys, that's what they think going viral is. It's just getting ratioed because all their, <laughs> all their tweets is just people being like, this is stupid. <laughs> it, I don't know, like watching all those live streams, that was the thing where I think in a lot of media coverage, they're like, look, he's so transparent and open. He's on Facebook all the time. Like he's doing it when he's at the dentist. And it's like, is well, that, that, actually, that does one, anyone want that? That one, back, that one backfired on him. That though. one did backfire. Although the, yeah. you know, the Vanity Fair profiler was very upset that people were like, there's a line in that piece. that's like this really unnecessarily defensive line about the dental surgery clip backlash where it's like uh, <laughs> the clip was taken out of context and, you know, drew unnecessary criticism. What was the context? I mean, the context was the I guy mean, went to the dentist. The, the context was that AO, AOC was doing really well with those videos where she would make dinner and talk about policy. And so he decided, what if I, what if I take this a step further? What if I go to the dentist and don't talk about policy? Well, I mean, that, okay, that's important here because I think that the average democratic consultant or strategist looking at that, they see somebody going viral by like live streaming something and they, they, what they see is the form and not the content. Right. Um, And so what they see is like, okay, so this is the new way that politicians, they become authentic and they become down with the kids as they do these things the kids are doing. They're on Snapchat, they're on Periscope, they're streaming their dental surgery, whatever. So when they see AOC like making ramen noodles or whatever and talking about healthcare, they don't see that the point of it is that people identify with her 
you know, because she's a, a you know a former bartender who like overcame these tremendous right. odds on like a populist you know left platform to take down Nancy Pelosi's successor, and is now talking substantively about politics, you know, against a backdrop that's not like a put on. Like you know, her apartment is not like a set that she's you know when she arrived <laughs> right. in in Washington. You know, she couldn't actually afford to rent anywhere because her salary hadn't kicked in yet. You know, so right. like, that stuff's not a put on. But with Beto, it's like uh, all they see is like the the act of streaming something, and they think, yeah. okay, that's the secret. Formula. And, and so, what do that's we the do? The secret oh. is getting on the platform, the same platform yeah, as the other person, exactly. not necessarily the content. And, and yeah. what do we do? Something that everybody can afford: the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I don't know. What'd you guys think of this movie? So, okay, you, oh, you've mentioned you know. that you've mentioned that you've watched a bunch of documentaries that follow this formula. Like, what's the for- let's hit the beats of the formula? Let's see. What are the beats? Oh yeah. Well, it starts with it the, starts the, with like they have a small crowd. Like they yeah, have yeah. one meeting with a small like, crowd. We, no one the, thinks they can one, do it. In this one, we see yeah. the live stream, and it's like two people are watching it, and right. th- there's not a lot of context for who the person is. They've just right. been kind of plucked. There's no from biography obscurity. of Beto in this, really. Like, no, the Mitt Romney one was like that too. It's like he just seems like this normal family man who was called by God one day to run for president <laughs> not, not much talk about him oh yeah he was you know bain capital and he was a governor <laughs> well even with like beto it's like they don't get into the facts like oh he was a city councilor who was kind of controversial then he was a congressman yeah. who was kind of controversial yeah. and, then, and now he's running for senate and yeah. so then inevitably there's yeah there's like a montage of the hard work the long nights the driving driving around. in the car dropping the swears yeah this was the this was the one thing that i think really actually drove beto's campaign completely nuts is that he insisted on driving the car always as like optics thing and like he actually isn't a very good drivers like i did see him like jump a couple of like um, um but it is something where like he he did that i mean probably partly because the cameras were there but also he'd get in the car and be like i'm driving and like luke you're saying there's like an exhaustion of doing the campaign i imagine that's like double so if you are also driving your ford f-150 across like a state as vast as texas for six months i'm also so tired of these documentaries where it seems like half of them are just like the candidate watching themselves on tv yeah yeah, yeah. well unless it's unless it's the anthony wiener documentary those are the greatest moments in the history of documentaries pure pure cinema the other sort of beat which i think forms usually the meat of these movies is like the politics what a concept idea which is just like right here that here are the strategists they're in the back rooms we're going to cut to the garbage can the garbage can piled high with starbucks coffees because they've been they've been pulling yet another all-nighter you know get you know telling people the good news you know we're gonna have a shot of election day where there's somebody being like in order to win we must obtain the most votes uh, you know, the best like, way yeah. of getting votes is by talking to people and convincing them to vote or whatever. So you see the volunteers <laughs> yeah. on the street with the clipboards and, yeah. and you see the school gymnasiums. You yeah. Know. And then, and yeah. then you see the magnanimous concession speech where your protagonist doesn't even win, but it turns out <laughs> that the real winner is democracy end scene. I wonder, so about this movie, like, I feel like this movie is built like a movie about a winning campaign. Like it, it is yeah. built that way. Cause it's like, okay, he starts out from nowhere and then he starts gaining momentum. He goes viral. Like people start saying, Oh, I like this Beto guy. Do you think the filmmakers thought he was going to win? Or do you think it's just kind of like, I, I don't know. I think they were probably 50, 50. And I think yeah. they probably thought like, even if he loses, he wins. Like Be- right, Beto yeah. seems rather untroubled by the situation at the end. I mean, we've seen, We've seen some documentaries where the person loses and they're crestfallen, but Beto yeah. seems pretty aware. Well, that, what, they, yeah. what they wanted either way was for him to become a national figure. And yeah. he, right. And he yeah. got that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because when they do show his, like, the, on the election night, 
uh, when he's going out to give his speech, which is basically like I watched both the crew speech, which the crew speech is like someone who has just narrowly dodged being hit by a train. Like he looks so <laughs> scared and he's just like, yeah, you know, we uh, we did it. We took it away from the, the New York liberals who sent in all the money. George Soros, like that was his speech. Like his dad invoked George Soros like before he got up there. And then the Beto speech is basically a victory speech. And like in the documentary, the way that they kind of solve that problem of like not having like the moment of Beto being sad is they have all these supporters yeah. who are you know, devastated by this outcome. Like, they never have Beto show any self-reflection about, like, being upset with how this turned out. I mean, it does show him uh, going home with his kids because at yeah. the end of the day, what really matters is family. And they, and they, <laughs> yeah, the family matters The family so I've much. neglected for two years. Family matters so much that we're going to have the cameras in here on election night. <laughs> Everyone's exhausted. The kids just want to go to bed. Yeah. I can't, I can't imagine, like, well, first of all, I can't imagine, like, saying to your family, uh, hey, I'm going to be on the road for two years because I think I, I'm going to run a long shot campaign in Texas to unseat Ted Cruz or whatever. And then also saying, oh, also there are going to be cameras here when I am home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, there's going to be no moments of privacy. But I, but I have absolutely no doubt that on on election night, Beto was what you know he was thinking about. Well, I mean, I'm going to run for president now. I, I mean, think that's it, why he's so chill. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny because he's got he's got yeah. some real chill in Cedar Rapids energy there. Too. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny because when like the day after, basically everybody in the Texas Democratic Party was like, "Great, okay, let's just run this back. Let's just do it again. Like, uh, let's yeah. just have him run against Cornyn in 2020. Like, Cornyn doesn't have the national support of Cruz." In two years, like another half a million Latinos are going to turn 18 who yeah. are in a voting pool for us. Like, he has this huge name recognition. We already have the signs, for God's sake. Like, all of them yeah. are like, Beto, just stay here, run for Senate again. And then if you want to be president one day, like, you'll be in such a better position because you would have mm-hmm. been, like, an actual senator. And the thing, I don't understand why people don't talk about that more. Like, if he actually was ambitious, like, the logical thing to do is like run for Senate in Texas after you almost won like in the first race for Senate in Texas. That also speaks to, you know, the way that, you know, Democrats have, have increasingly elevated the presidency as, as the only as thing the, you the, the, yeah, only as the only thing that matters, matters right? Yeah. I mean, it's like Democrats after 2010 were just taking L's at, you know, in Senate in state state races, Senate races, House races, losing uh, governorships, but nobody cared like the whole yeah. their all their legislative authority atrophied but they were like we're gonna have a lock on the presidency forever and i mean frankly like the republican party cares more about that stuff because the republican party is a lot more programmatic they have an agenda they're trying to implement which involves like destroying organized labor uh stopping anybody that doesn't vote republican from voting nuking the hurricanes whatever whatever the thing is they have an evil agenda but it's an agenda nonetheless and you know democrats the agenda you know I hate to bring up the West Wing again, but the agenda is to rise to the top and give kind of soaring speeches about how America's a glittering ideal. And that is like, for a lot of big name liberal strategists and politicians, that is their conception of what, that, that is their project. What makes a Texas queso so great? It just tastes good. It, it speaks to the soul. Good queso relaxes you. Look, if che- cheese dip can be served on a Ritz cracker, or with one of those tiny Vienna sausages. Queso is made to be scooped up with tortilla chips, dribbling down your chin and onto your shirt. One is a visceral, emotional, powerful family bond as you and your kids pour into nachos covered in queso. Uh, The other is party favors at, at an afternoon tea. 
So, I mean, okay, obviously, uh, when you're listening to this, Beto will be the president, uh, obviously, because that's the way these things go. Well, because um, because we've endorsed him. Yeah, because he's got the, the Michael Lemus bump. Uh, but, I mean, from the week that we're recording this, Beto, a couple of polls have come out, and Beto has actually fallen to seventh in the Democratic primary, which is like... Sad face. Which, like, I don't even understand how. Like, he's, at, he's behind Andrew Yang now. Like, he's almost bottomed out like i don't really know what would have to happen for him to drop out i guess do you think he's going to hang in until next year like is he going to hang into the primaries i really don't know i mean i feel like i mean i guess the 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 plan is he's sitting on enough money that if he you know and he's he's saying i'm gonna skip iowa then if he does badly in iowa yeah uh, he'll just be able to say well i didn't really campaign there um, right. And, you know, it, it might be a little, it might not be until like South Carolina or California or something that he drops out. But uh, I'm not really sure what the game plan is because it's hard to see um, how he'd recover at this point. I mean, um, one possibility is that all these people are just kind of waiting around for Biden to fuck up so that they can, yeah. you know, they can kind of become the like, you know, they can become the antidote to kind of the, the populist like Bernie current and I think there are some establishment Democrats even though they're warming to her that are just ultimately not going to be comfortable with Elizabeth Warren um, and so there's a lot of people who probably think and Beto's probably one of them who thinks well if I just wait around long enough then I could become this you know that I mean that's kind of that's probably what Harris Buttigieg yeah. and Beto are all kind of banking on at this point it's like that Biden stumbles eventually like someone talks him out of running like Obama has a heart to heart and is like you're you, you don't have to do this like, <laughs> well then, he's already said that no, he's already, the, yeah, the, right, the, no, next, the next conversation is you're not running. <laughs> <laughs> the next conversation is please stop hurting our legacy. I mean, I guess that makes sense, but I does it make sense in the context of like you've seen all these people who ran in kind of the the Republican you know Michigan back in 2016 like there kind of didn't seem to be a penalty for running for president. Like yeah. if you if you could raise enough money and run you'd either get like a cabinet post or like you'd end up on Fox News as a commentator or like you'd be president of a university worst case scenario like something happens for you after well and that's like, what kind of the, no downside that's what it. the primary process is about for a lot of people you know it's, yeah. it's about creating a kind of a, a brand I mean if you're like a a Hickenlooper or a John Delaney, what it's about is it's about uh, showing big business interest. Like, hey, look, I'm really good at like attacking progressive initiatives. It's like I will, uh, you you can you can like sock puppet me. Just give me as much of your dirty money as possible, and I will say whatever nonsense you want to try to like neutralize progressive forces in in this country. And then you know that way you get to fail up into like a business post, or you know if if a shittier Democrat wins, maybe even get a shot at the vice presidency. And that that's kind of like what the point of that is but yeah i think the republican primary uh last time just showed that yeah there's there's very little downside i mean you're probably going to come out unless you really fuck up you're going to come out and it's going to be a net positive for you your brand is going to be inflated and who knows maybe get a cabinet post or may you know yeah even if it's like yeah the chancellorship of like uh you know university of texas el paso <laughs> well it's uh, funny because it's like even if you think back to that one like rick perry is the one who made the biggest gaffe like he's the one who got up he's like i'm going to eliminate three agencies and then he forgot an agency and now he's running and now he's running them. the agency he <laughs> forgot yeah, like yeah, yeah. there's kind of like no it doesn't if you can raise enough money and like keep getting on tv long enough and like keeping a, a staff going and people believing in you like you just kind of just kind of why aren't we doing it i don't know guys who would get in there (laughs) let's throw our hats in the ring guys michael Mm -hmm. s 2020 hi i'm ted with harry shearer retiring i'm auditioning for any part i can get in the simpsons smithers release the hounds excellent heidly ho neighbor oakley doakley neighborino one of the great exchanges between homer and lisa but dad i'm a vegetarian I don't eat animals. But Lisa, 
animals are so delicious. There's the animal we get bacon from, the animal we get ham from, the animal we get sausage from. Dad, that's all the same animal. Oh, sure, Lisa, a magic animal that all the wonderful foods come from. Kang and Kodos. In one of the great classic episodes when they run for president, I'm running for president now, and you know, it's really tough. Forward, not backwards. Upwards, not downwards. And always twirling, twirling for freedom. Been talking a lot about Disney on the podcast lately. Uh, <laughs> so, so, some people have Epstein mm-hmm. brain. I, I have Disney brain. <laughs> you yes. have Mickey Mouse brain. I was alluding on a recent episode to the fact that since Disney has bought Fox, it's going to be harder and harder to see anything that Fox has made because Disney, of course, keeps all of their intellectual property under lock and key. They have very rigid control over they have, it. They have a vault that they keep talking about. All the novelty Kevin Smith podcasts are kept down there along with like the Democratic Party's secret racism files. <laughs> That's right. The ones that the Nets of Susan uncovered. Yeah, so it's yeah. so heroically in Obama 2016. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess it came out this week. There was a lot of talk on, on the Twitter about it, how Disney is no longer licensing... Fox movies to repertory cinemas. You know, in Toronto here, we have a. We're lucky enough to live in Toronto where there's a very rich repertory cinema culture, but even in, I think, a lot of smaller cities, there are Fox movies that play around Christmas time at movie theaters. Stuff like, I don't know, Home Alone, Die Hard. These movies are very treasured parts of people's yeah. calendars now. And now those movies cannot play at a theater that plays any first-run movies. Or there, there are very strict rules that basically keep them from playing anywhere where they would play now. And that is very tragic to me. Well, Will, it, it seems like a point that a lot of people make when they talk about Marvel backlash. Like, I am not a... I don't especially... I haven't seen most of those Marvel movies. I don't mm-hmm. really care about them. It's like... It's like you can not like them, but like other people yeah, like them. People let, like what they like. Let, you know? let people like what they let like. Let people like what they like. But this is literally a case of people not being allowed to see yeah. these things anymore. I, I mean, think of all the things that Fox owns. Let's right. say someplace like the Tiff Bell Lightbox wants. Yeah, they to... own the freaking Republican Party, is what. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Let's say the Tiff Bell Lightbox wants to do a John Ford retrospective. Sure. Well, under the new terms, they can't show My Darling Clementine. They can't right. show The Grapes of Wrath. That's they incredible. can't show How Green Was My Valley. I wow, mean, Jesus. like, why bother at that point? Yeah. And so, I don't know. There's so much concern about, about the canon. Well, the canon's under lock and key now, so don't worry <laughs> about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I, I think most people probably don't get the stakes of when you talk about like, oh, two movie studios merge. But it is something where like competition in this case between movie studios actually like well, matters. Well, <laughs> I, I saw people pointing out on Twitter, think about the Rocky Horror Picture Show, yeah. which Fox owns. This is something that has been playing continuously in many theaters since 1975. And this is not my insight. I saw this circulating a lot. But in a lot of small towns where this plays or small cities, the Rocky Horror Picture Show is a very important space for, say, LGBTQ youth or just yeah. or just younger people who feel like misfits in some way. I mean, does that movie still get to play? I mean, maybe they'll make some exception for it, but they could just easily say, no, we're putting it in the Disney vault and it's not playing anymore. It's ours. Well, I, I wonder, like, what's the end game for Disney with that? Because it's like they're getting money if they screen these things. Like, is it are they going to put it on their streaming platforms? You have to pay for it there? Like, yeah, what's, that's, what's the that's idea? actually yeah. probably what it is. Okay. They, they're not interested in, in the theatrical market for anything but their big movies. And in fact, I think they see the theatrical market now as competition for their streaming services. I mean, most studios regard 
places like Repertory Cinemas as just free money. And, you know, it's it's funny, a, a consequence of the last 10 years, I've always, you know, I've always felt that these divisions between high and low yeah. culture are arbitrary. But now there are all these people who self-identify as Disney fans, which is a, a very alarming thing. And, you know, perhaps we need to put stigma back on that. <laughs> um, I, I saw Josh Lewis, who hosts a podcast I've been on called Sleezoids, a film podcast, and he works at a repertory cinema too. He had a post that went kind of viral this week where he said something like, we've been all but straight up told as an indie theater, we can no longer book Fox titles, rap or smaller new releases, but congrats on the Fantastic Four movie. And uh, because it went viral, he had a lot of people in his mentions going after uh, him. going yeah. after him you know there was one person who sort of went viral in their own right because they said i'd rather your niche rundown theater close than not get something as cool as the mandalorian oh my god and there were a lot of responses like that and i mean i i just don't know what to do about well, this it's interesting i just read a book called the big picture do you guys know about this book it was no. written by this guy ben fritz who like covers the movie industry and it was mm-hmm. about largely the sony hacks like it was based mm-hmm. on the sony hacks and the thing in it that was so interesting is the way that marvel especially have kind of weaponized fans because like marvel mm-hmm. basically forced sony to license them spider-man by having all these people like online who identify as marvel fans be mm-hmm. like sony get you know signing these petitions they're like five hundred thousand people who are yeah. like give the give spider-man back to marvel and it's basically like getting all these people online to sign petitions to ask one corporation to give the rights to a thing over back to another corporation and like it's such a strange thing they were able to do yeah well you know if home alone plays at christmas at a yeah. theater that's not threatening the mandalorian no it's no not way. threatening disney plus right. i mean it's and what it is is it's just giving a lot of people like a nice time at christmas with a movie they enjoy I don't know an answer to this or anything, but like, isn't this kind of part of what antitrust rules exist for is to like yeah. stop this well, kind of thing from happening? Like yeah. you see something like this and it just sort of feels like, well, Home Alone at this point, like ought to be just part of the culture. Like, right, like, it, like it ought to belong to the audience at this point as much as it belongs to Disney. And it, it would in, under a sensible system, but unfortunately it doesn't. What I'm looking forward to most is, you know, when uh, these big conglomerates have, have kind of wrung everything they can out of you know, sequels and reboots and the so-called soft relaunches or whatever, soft reboots, whatever they're called, you know, when the studio mergers actually lead to just the fusion of universes. So like every movie is just kind of like Ready Player One, you know? So it'll be like, you know, instead of just like all of the event, you know, all the Avengers together, where it's like, here's all these different superheroes that exist as part of kind of the same broad universe. It's like, here's like Star Wars. uh, But what if Star Wars also had the Ninja Turtles and Sonic the Hedgehog? Well, at at that point- On screen together at last. The movies will be nothing but intellectual property, (laughs) like established brands. Then they just become dramas again. And we're seeing that we're seeing that with the new film Joker, where where it's just a remake of the King of Comedy, but it's got but the, 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 jo- the Joker. The Joker was just kind of in it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's the only way to make a movie like the King of Comedy now is is to have the Joker be in it. So we're actually I, already at that stage. I mean, I think I think kind of the like what you're describing, like the ultimate version of that, is actually it came out in the Sony hack that they were really considering just making Men in Black and Twenty One Jump Street the same universe. Like it had there was yeah. no sense to it. They were just kind of like, <laughs> we have these two things people like. Let's yeah. just stick them on screen together. Well, and I assume at a certain point the logic is going to become like, well people like this thing and I like this other thing. So you add them together and that's like double the power. You just add their like collective hit points into one. Yeah, man, you you get chocolate in your peanut butter. You get peanut butter in your chocolate. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. (laughs) Now watch this drive. We got three minutes, so we're going to let them uh, take us out and... uh... 
We've got another little tune here to play for us. <laughs> Bob, are you ready? I want to leave. Okay. Uh -oh. Bob accuses us of being scared on this show. One, two, three, four, five, six. Take it away. Let's go here. Net. They are slow starting. Hurry up, guys. The show's about over. Let's kick. Bob, I'm afraid the show's going to be over before they get done. 